Breaking news. He was like, oh, I'm going to let the news I watch you. <laughs> That's dope. You remember me. That's tight. Don't talk to me in public, though. But whatever. No big deal. <laughs> I'm bitter about it. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. It's not a scam, no. No, Emily. You know me. She knows you. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Show him the touch. I'm just saying. Right. Exactly. I know you know me. <laughs> I, I was told you know who I am. <laughs> Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Duji Taha. I'm Luther Licks Books Hughes. And I'm Gabrielle Bates. This week, we're talking with Hanif Abdul-Rakib. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. His first full-length poetry collection, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, was released in 2016 from Button Poetry, was named a finalist for the Eric Hoffer Book Prize, and was nominated for a Hurston Wright Legacy Award. His first collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, was released in 2017 by $2 Radio and was named a book of the year by BuzzFeed, Esquire, NPR, Oprah Magazine, and the Los Angeles Review, among others. Hanif's book, Go Ahead in the Rain, published this year by University of Texas Press, debuted as a New York Times bestseller. His next books are A Fortune for Your Disaster from Tin House and They Don't Dance No Mo from Random House. Before we chop it up with Hanif, we have a question from the audience. Two times Tommy asks, I just got a rejection from a journal I really want to be published in. How long should I wait to submit again? Or should I even bother? So all the time, I used to resubmit the day I got a rejection. The day of. The day of. Like unless the journal said wait a certain amount of time or the submission portal wasn't open anymore. I just took that as a sign that... I could submit again. I don't know. Is that crazy? I mean, what made you want to submit the day of the rejection? Because I always had new poems that I liked better. And if I really wanted to be in that journal, then I knew that I needed to just keep going, keep at it. I don't know. I definitely do do that sometimes. Uh, I am much less, I mean, like last year I was trying to get a hundred rejections. Right. And so like that was much oh, more, you're doing that thing. Yeah, yeah, I was much more like, I, I should have a submission here at this place that I really want to be published in. Now I am much more curating like the poems that I am writing that I think fit here. Um, and respective journals that said, like, I totally feel that hunger. Like I get that hunger. Mm-hmm. I'm like, if you're in that place where like, let's be frank, like you kind of need pub creds, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. especially when you're early, like that to open some doors, like go for it. Um, be smart about it, but I think you should go for it. And if you're waiting like at least four to six months, usually to hear back, then like you may as well go ahead and submit again because you're going to have to wait regardless. I just don't really see the point if you've got the work ready and waiting for some artificial reason out of some sort of, I don't know, shame. Like what, totally. what's really to lose? Like that you're going to seem too over eager. Um, as an editor, I don't care if somebody submits again, as long as it's new work. Yeah. Never mind that they're probably not going to read it that day. Right. right. Like, like it, it shows that they really want it. If anything, if you notice I bet people don't even really notice. What do you do, Lou? Um, when I am rejected from publications, 
I just wait. Um, for what? Because a lot of time, well, I think, well, for one, it's to make sure I'm submitting the best possible work next time um, and not submitting off of a hunger mentality. I'm submitting because I know this work is going to be the shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really can't say no to this work. Um, and I believe in the journal itself, right? Um, but if I'm thinking, uh, not and being an editor of journals, um, I have seen people who submit like within a two month period of their rejection slip, right? Slip. What am I? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what am the I? metaphysical right. rejection slip. <laughs> the meta- metaphysical rejection slip. Um, and I don't see any growth. Then I'm mm. then questioning the 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 need to submit again. Um, y'all know I'm the queen of like wait just wait yeah (laughs) um because like most likely the growth isn't going to be substantial enough Mm. for me to recognize the growth Mm. um and if you're really like wanting to be in that journal then there's no rush to be in the journal right um there's there's going to be times where you feel like it's going to be perfect but say the poem isn't ready yet right Mm. um say Mm. And also, again, like we said it before, like people, editors are human beings, right? And so maybe you want to submit the same day of slip, and maybe that, poem, that person be like, well, you know what? This is actually a good poem that day. But say you're editing it heavily the next day, then what does that say about the poem itself? Was mm-hmm. it ready yet, right? And so I think just be, just know the work is the best it could possibly be when you're submitting it. For sure. Well, that's just like general advice. That's just general advice, yeah. right? Yeah. And even like, I mean, I've, I've submitted to places like within like a two-month period after that I was rejected, yeah. right? Like, mm-hmm. no big deal. There's, there's no stakes, right? Just no stakes at all. But online is forever. If it's an online journal, right? It's mm-hmm. not going away. And most journals are mm-hmm. online, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even in print, those really go nowhere. So it's like, yeah. What are you submitting for? Is it to be exposed mm-hmm. or is it to like do something else? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think when I was in my super hungry, eager submitting phase, my work was growing and strengthening by leaps and bounds at that time. And so like the day I got that rejection, when I looked back at the packet I had submitted, I was like, I know I have six poems that are much better, better than yeah. that now. And so I, I felt very confident when I was sending work out that day, like, I have to show them that I'm better yeah. <laughs> than what they just rejected. Um, were there poems? So I like, think that's the headspace I was in at the time. Were there poems? Were there poems? <laughs> um, were they in the same stream stream of like what you submitted before, or were like new topics, new ideas, new experiments? Like, how did you approach mm. the the new packet? Well, I don't know. I think you know every poem I write is by me and so there are certain commonalities that arise but I mean I I tend to play around a lot uh with stuff so my packets usually aren't super cohesive which is a whole nother topic we could talk about sometime um but there's usually a lot of variety in terms of the packets themselves so every packet feels pretty different yeah I think the only breaks that I've sort of really put on myself especially or when there are uh like windows like reading windows i will like save the journal knowing you know if there's like two months left of their reading window i'll give myself that two months to like refine that packet or like make sure that i have you know i'll wait till that 
until like the last day of their reading period, knowing that mm -hmm. like they're not going to get back to you in that mm -hmm. like two month window anyway, mm -hmm. to like get the, to make sure that they have the best set of poems or that I have spent the most amount of time possible with the poems that they will receive like the second or third time mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. um, do you, and here's a, is there a point at which you would not submit? Like, is there a maximum amount of rejections from a place for you that you'd be like, all right, maybe I'm just going to cool it until maybe they solicit me. I don't know I'm like the exact hot. number is, yeah. but I've definitely hit it with certain journals, which I will not name, but it was like, I got a lot of encouraging rejections in a row. And finally I was kind of like, you know what? I'm going to cool it on me. this one. <laughs> yeah, you call, you call me if you really want it like that. But uh, but in general, no, I don't think so. I think it depends on the journal. Um, like, you know, poetry. We all spent poetry right. thousands of times. Right. Would we ever stop? Like, you know, like, it's just like, it's just like <laughs> right. weird, yeah. right? It, it seems like weird. you should almost always have, like, a submission right. at poetry, it, right? Right, exactly. Like, so, like, but some, like, some places, I'd be like, Look, you have three chances, Luther, to submit to this place. They say no through all three times. They'll come to you eventually. And most journals do come to people eventually, right? Um, I've been solicited for journals I've been rejected for for years. I was like, mm. hi, <laughs> welcome to my house. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I mean, but then again, it's like that again that waiting game. Like, do you do you submit until you're fatigued, mm. or do you just like, okay, mm. I have this amount of time to do it and then if it doesn't happen doesn't happen um but then again also like we're human beings like people have aesthetics you know so it's like mm -hmm. i may just not like that person's poem or how they write a certain thing yeah. doesn't mean it's bad this is i this is what it is right um so yes and no one part of tommy's question that we haven't really answered that i want to answer is that second part which is like should i even bother and i've heard this from people before like if they get rejected from a journal they just assume that their work is not for that journal full stop and they'll never submit again which is wild to me mm -hmm. um but so I, I would really encourage people to maybe not think that way like just because you get a rejection does not mean they're never gonna like anything you write well, and like, never mind from the editor's point of view, mm -hmm. I, like Lou, you were alluding to it. It's just like, there are a lot of variables, mm -hmm. right? Like, and especially if you're at a bigger journal where there are multiple layers of readings, mm -hmm. right? Like when students are like the first filter before like they ever gets in front of a poetry editor or, or again, just like whatever the fuck happened that day, <laughs> you know, to the reader to like affect the way they look at that work. And they're just like, there's so many variables that go into um, whether or not the poem ends up in the journal, you know, I think I have gotten the feedback that like, this is a great poem, but just like in the set of poems that we had to pick for this journal, mm. it just like didn't fit. And again, like that's just something that's like totally out of your control, you know, mm. um, which is to say, yeah, like always submit. Right. I think like you, I think I am pro hunger, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> always submit. Like if, if, if you have, if yeah. you're asking between those two things, it's like, just do it. Why not go for it? Yeah. yeah. Speaking, Speaking of going for it, <laughs> should we go for this conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib? Let's do it. All right, cool. 
Um, so I've read in an interview or I heard in an interview um, that you've talked about arriving to poetry a little later in your life. Um, yeah. Could you tell us about how you arrived at poetry, like what that process is like? Yeah, I was a music critic first. Um, and gosh, you were just talking about how, um, oh, what did you say? You, got, you said the thing about how um, people were like less imagery less poetic that was kind of happening with my music criticism people are kind of like well this is the language is too poetic and whatever and i didn't really know what that meant because i didn't write poems but i'm from columbus ohio which is a really strong place for poetry um and at the time um there were like two really big poetry slams in the city and i went to one called writer's block because at writer's block in order to compete in the slam you had to bring a couple of new poems every week and so I didn't really care about slam, <laughs> but I did like the idea of this like self, you know, this like this urge to generate work because I didn't write poems. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew how to write, I think. I knew how to like write language or I knew how to um, evoke emotion. Um, so I would go to writer's block and participate in the slams and I would ask people what books I should read. And I grew up um, loving music and I grew up investing in like the reading of liner notes. There's something about lineage building and a liner note process. So there's something about, it's not just about like shouting out who you like, right? It's also about this person carried me here from, from where I was. And so I did the same thing with poetry books. I would get, a po- like the first poetry book I ever got was um, Wind in a Box. Mm-hmm. And I just read the acknowledgments and then wrote down all the poets and the acknowledgments and then got some of their books and then mm-hmm. read their acknowledgments. And so eventually I was like back at Robert Hayden and like reading, mm-hmm. you know, um, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know what I was doing. Or maybe I did, but didn't know the name for it. But I was kind of building my own poetry tree, you know, like um, Khadijah Queen was another one I kind of stumbled into early. Um, and, and I was, yeah, I was just reading a lot of books. Um, I didn't have an MFA. I didn't study writing in college, you know, so it was an opportunity for me to rebuild my voice in the image of writers I loved. Why do you return to poetry, do you think? I, it's more, um, let me think of how to say this without disrespecting nonfiction. Because I love, obviously love nonfiction, right? That's, yeah, but I think poetry challenges me significantly more. You know, I can mm. write, um, and I know this because this is for the first time in my life I was working on two books at one time in different genres. Um, I could write 5,000 words in a day and feel not drained, but it can take me multiple days to work on like a 12-line poem, you mm. know? Mm. Um, I think because... I've allowed myself to believe that in the poem, the imagination can be infinite. That means that so much of my time writing poems is still reeling myself in, right? I think a lot of poets who have done it for longer than me or have a, just kind of know where their limits are, you know? And for me, it's like, well, my limits can be anything. So why should I not, which is true, but also not true, right? It's <laughs> like, that's the great trick of it all is that that's like a true thing, but also a real lie. Um, but it's a worthy lie. It's like a, for me, it's like a worthwhile lie to pursue until it, until the lie appears in front of you, right? Like, I'm gonna go in every poem and think my imagination can be limitless until I am proven otherwise. Um, I think that's been vital for my work. So I'm, I kind of return to poems to to uh, spread the wings of of lying to myself. <laughs> um, so I remember growing up a lot of times. I used to write rap music a lot. Yeah. Um, not anymore. God, that has stopped since I was like 15 years old. Um, but growing up, it was a big like part of my life. And I don't know why I always did this. Um, I think my cousins taught me this, to write rap lyrics with like slashes um, as like being a um, 
kind of a, a degree of like bar measurements. Yep. And so in your poem, you do a lot of slashes. And so that takes me to this kind of bar measurement, um, rap, lyrical type of writing. But I'm more concerned about how you use slashes for yourself in your poem. Because I am both baffled by and also intrigued by the way you use them. I think they're always changing a little bit depending on the poem. Yeah. So I want to know like, yeah, that the, the form of the slash for you, what does that mean for you? I love a, a funny thing about my writing is that I, I wrote for, um, for the first like two years of my writing poems, I only wrote for the idea that the poem would be performed out loud. And so I didn't even know what line breaks were. It was just mm. like, here's a block of text that I'm going to read out loud or memorize and then not even have to look at. Right. Um, and so because of that, I, I, become, I became um, somewhat of a scholar of the block text. You know, I, I think some poets are really fascinated with the line break and the, which I, I mean, this book is much different. The newer book is much different than my first book. So there are a lot of really tense line breaks and all that. But for early on, I was so in, infatuated with how many different ways can I make a block of text move. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love to think of the poem as not just one instrument, but several instruments, right? I think the poet is uh, has the responsibility of being a band leader to the many sounds that, that that is on the page, right? And so the slash to me is a type of percussive break, right? It's a hard stop um, that allows for a small drum fill, if you will, and then we move on to the next set of sounds. You know what I mean? So for me, it's, it's a, a question of uh, what the band is demanding sonically. I, my editing process is a sonic process. Um, one of the earliest things I ever heard from a poet was something that Jamal May told me, where he was like, um, if you're gonna read your poems out loud, you might as well be good at it, which is like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a very simple thing, but yeah. true, you know what right. I mean? And so, so much of my, no one likes to hear the sound, well, maybe some people do. I do not like to hear the sound of my own voice. But when I edit, I record myself. I record myself reading my first drafts and then play them back to me, because you're, I think a big failure in the way we talk about the voices that people talk about the voice as the instrument, but the language is the instrument. The voice is just the vehicle for the, mm-hmm. the voice is the amplifier. And I, your, your, your voice tells you how the, how the shit's gonna be played, right? Even if you don't think it, like I read stuff differently. And so my voice kind of shapes the poem for me. And so I think of oh, the slash as those kind of percussive breaks that interrupt. So across a lot of your work, there seems to be this impulse to make pilgrimages of sorts to like go to the place and witness where a particular piece of art was made or where um, someone died perhaps and um, I was hoping you would talk a little bit about that impulse yeah well sometimes it's not intentional but rather like a a calling Um, you know and they can't kill us there's the Springsteen essay where I, I went to Mike Brown's memorial, but, um, you know, I had happened to be, I was in Ferguson um, during the, the protests, you know, um, and I had happened to be at Wash U, um, and I was just close by, you know, and I think there is something that I'm obsessed with, and it is, if there is one thing, I'm obsessed with many things, but one of my obsessions is memory in the things that inform me that I've lived, right? And so for me to make a pilgrimage back to Ferguson, for example, is to not only say that I have been here once, but that several people have been here once. And even before our once, there was another once in which Mike Brown was alive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I've begun to really consider 
that even memory is a privilege, right? Um, not only the having of memory, but to have a good relationship with a memory or a visceral relationship with a memory that um, requires some amount of feeling or that brings forth some amount of feeling. And I think the best way to honor that for me is to archive and then like re-archive, right? To return and then archive again. Um, even if it's just like looking up a video on YouTube and being like, I was at that concert, I was there. I know I was there, you know. Um, I'm infatuated with reminders that I have lived. Mm-hmm. You seem to have a particularly strong memory. Uh, I mean, just like your immediate recall of names and facts and dates. Um, do you feel like you've always had a strong memory? Yeah, what's weird, a, a party trick that I used to do and can still do, though no one asked me to, is that um, <laughs> I can like name where most NBA players played in college without looking. It's because, um, so I have anxiety. I have two anxiety disorders. And when I was younger, and still now, something that really calms me is looking through NBA box scores. And so just because there's some certainty of like, there will be numbers here that I understand. Yeah. Um, and so in looking at box scores, you like look at the player's stats and his college is like right up there. And so just like I have this institutional memory now, right? But another part of that is I, I think... Um, I became familiar with loss really early. You know, my mother died when I was young, and then friends died when I was young. And so it occurred to me that if I had to sharpen anything, it would be memory, because memory is what carries me back to the people I've loved. And so I have to really uh, take care of my... I mean, there's no real way to take care of one's memory. But there is this idea that I have to continue to excavate and dig out the living memory of people. Yeah. I'm really curious about uh, in your essay writing and I think even in your poetry, um, you sort of have a, you you turn to a move to sort of like re-explain what you've explained. Or I think like with the clauses, like uh, what I mean by that is, yeah. or like, which is to say, um, it's like this really intentional turn. Uh, and I'm curious, like the impulse that drives you towards that rhetorical move and then also like the implication of sort of like erasing everything you've said before to re-render something entirely different. Yeah. It's a very, um, like Ross gay slash, uh, Melissa Phoebos type of thing. Um, they both, I mean, Melissa does that so well. Um, you know, Melissa, I don't know if anyone reads Melissa Phoebos, but she's very good at being like, when I say you, I mean like actually you. Right. Um, it's like the, this is like maybe a bad example, but I often think of the song No Scrubs and how um, <laughs> the, the direct, song. Yeah, don't we all the think about song. it all the time? <laughs> and the, the, how the like direct address in that song really works mm-hmm. where you get over the bridge and they're like, if you don't, whatever, whatever, I'm talking to you. Like that direct address is so like aggressive uh, in, in a way where I always, I always joke about how I was like 12 years old on the school bus, like really offended by No Scrubs. So it's like, wow, they're like talking, <laughs> they're talking about like me. You know, but that's it, right? Like that's how it works. And so I think, um, damn good song. Like even in music, where I I most learn the direct address in music, but then to see that writers could do it, to see someone like Ross, um, you know, Ross has that. Ross, in some ways, 
is like ruminating on the same trick over and over again, right? There's always the Ross trick where it's like, well, I've fallen in love with this person in your work, and then the, the rug comes out, right? There's that poem about feet where um, mm-hmm. at the end it's like, well, of course she's dead, you know? Um, and Melissa does that too where um, she'll be telling a story about herself, and then it's like, well, I need you to understand that this is happening everywhere. And I think there's something there with um, not just re-rendering, but raising the stakes of a reader's interest. Um, not saying like I assume you have not been paying attention, but more saying um, that even in my own paying attention, the world has shifted while I've been writing this, and so I need to like return to something that makes sense. Hmm. It's a as a, it sounds like then it's like a way for not just the reader but for the writer to sort of re-engage. Yeah, like I think I'm doing it for me more than anything. Like I'm re-rendering for myself, um, and part of that is just because my brain works at a rate that. Um, I want, I really want to be a reliable narrator, but I'm not, you know, there are some people, there are some poets and writers who are, um, affixed to a type of reliable narration. Um, and there are some who are like committed to the unreliability of their own narration. I think someone like Kava, who is really committed to unreliable narration and does that well, um, versus someone like angel who is committed to reliable narration and does that well but i'm somewhere in between where i wish i were reliable but i know that in my writing i become less and less reliable by the minute and so part of that re-rendering is attempting to get myself back to what i imagine as reliability is that a failure of language or like your perspective oh you mean my reliability as a narrator mm-hmm. i think it's a failure of my perspective it's a failure of i think me trying to um grasp as many ideas as possible and trying to push them all through the same single lens instead of just offering up new lenses, right? But it's because I believe, like I've done it before, right? It's, um, you know, the the new book of poems was like kind of at one point in its early draft revolving around the movie The Prestige um, and like heartbreak and emotional distress. Um, the thing about The Prestige or the thing about magic tricks in general is that uh, if a magician, there's that whole thing about the bullet catch, right? The, the trick where you shoot the gun and catch a bullet in your teeth. Um, and there's a point in that movie where like someone is trying to convince someone not to do it because they're like, it's too dangerous because like it is dangerous. Mm-hmm. But the person is like, well, I've done it before. Mm. You know what I mean? Like this is the only evidence I need that I can do it again is that I've done it before. Mm. And I think that is um, perhaps a fate. Not, it's not even, I don't know. It's uh, one of the flaws of my writing is that I've done this thing before and I know that if I keep hammering away, I don't need to make a new lens. I can just widen the lens enough, right? Um, and I don't know if that's a failure, but it is where my unreliable narration comes in. And I think the, the failure is perhaps in my own brain and not just embracing the fact that my narration skills are unreliable, right? <laughs> um, I like want to be like Slick Rick, but I'm more like Ghostface, kind of. That bullet catch metaphor feels so true when it comes to writing poems. I feel like I've talked about this with so many people. It's like you pull off this miraculous magic trick this one time and you think like, I should be able to replicate this. Like I wrote one good poem, I should be able to write another good poem and then suddenly it feels like, how did I ever do that? Like it's totally impossible. What is a poem? I'm never gonna write a poem again. You know, like just that that thought process of like, I pulled off this magic Mm. and now I'm gonna be able to do it again. Yeah. Question mark. It's always the question mark gets larger and larger some days. (laughs) That's so true. We were hoping you would read a little bit from the new book, Go Ahead in the Rain. Oh, sure. Um, and we were hoping you would read The Low Wind. 
Should I read this whole chapter? <laughs> I think just, just the, the first, first letter. Yeah, yeah. Five. All right, the whole first letter. Wait, the five or the tip? Dear Tip, I too have an interest in that which can be felt more than heard. You know this from jazz, as I do, but also from the way the body reacts with a low, joyful moan after placing the first bite of a good meal on your tongue. I'm talking about vibrations. In music, it works best if one imagines hearing as a straight line with a larger number of hertz on the high end and a smaller number of hertz on the low end. Any music you hear falls along that spectrum. Higher noises, like cymbals crashing together or a car stereo with the treble turned all the way up, fall on the high end. Sounds that demand the ear's most eager attention. Sounds that are jarring enough to get a room to snap to focus. On the extreme end of this spectrum would be some guitar feedback rung through a speaker. The low end is where the bass and the kick drums exist. You found a home here, as I did, listening to the bass licks of Ron Carter and Stanley Clark on good speakers and feeling my chest rattle a little bit with each slow walk of the fingers along a string. Tip, what I most love about jazz is the way the low end is not only desired but prayed to. I am wondering what space you went to when you let your chest direct your musical curiosities and allowed your ears to rest. Some might say it is too wild to strip away all those sounds and just leave a song's backbone, but you knew what you were trying to spell out. An homage to the horns and strings, bowing to Ron Carter himself and promising not to curse too much on the record if he came in and played some bass for you. Jive Records never knew what they had. And I know you understood this always, but it's a good time to say it again now. They didn't deserve the album, but you gave it to them anyway. When asked about the sophomore slump, you said, what the fuck is that? I'm going to make the low end theory. And I must say that I am impressed by how you never imagined failure at your doorstep. Maybe the idea was that if you never left the studio after making the first album, there was no true sophomore album, just a continuation, another arm attached to the body you were building. It is really something to make the music talk so that the rapper doesn't have to speak until they are ready. I love the sample as you love the sample tip, for how it can be extracted from the past and stretched over a sound reaching for the future. On Check the Rhyme, there was Grover Washington Jr. again, as he was in 1975, when he put out back-to-back -back albums that were both critical and commercial darlings, one in the winter and one in the summer. I loved the way you stripped his tune Hydra down to its bass elements and let it rattle around a bit along the spine of Check the Rhyme, but not so much that it drowns out the Minnie Ripperton sample. I love the deep and chunky guitar plucks from Baby This Love I Have. I, too, have dug in the crates and found that record, Adventures in Paradise, the record that came after the album that made many a household name. This is also a type of sophomore record, isn't it? Baby, This Love I Have is a perfect album opener, a reintroduction, if you will. Maybe all the samples you chose were chosen by way of reintroduction, as you imagine your own sound being reintroduced. And don't you love the cover of Adventures in Paradise? Minnie, propped up on a chair with a real lion at rest beside her. The story I've heard goes that there were two lions at first, but the initial lion snapped at Ripperton and attacked her without warning. 
The lion's handler removed the first lion and brought in the second. The second, upon seeing Ripperton, laid right down next to her and didn't move. Shortly after the album cover was shot, she found out she had cancer and was given six months to live. She made it longer than that, but I've been thinking about how the art of the sample is also the art of breathing life into someone who doesn't have a life anymore. And I say this and know that you are not in the business of resurrection as much as you are in the business of feeling, but I hate that that Minnie Ripperton was lost before I could live at the same time she lived. And I hate that she is only known for the one song and nothing more. And I hate that I cannot hear that song and think that she sang it without knowing how much longer she was going to live. But I suppose none of us truly know, Tip. Which is why the sample is a joy, isn't it? The wind blows a memory of someone into a room through sound and the architect captures that memory with their bare hands and puts it on wax. Is this to the low end, the feeling of something familiar that sits so deep in your chest that you have to hum it out. James Brown on show business or Sly Stone on jazz. There are cookouts and soul train lines on this album. There are hot rooms and hot card games. I imagine the low end to be anything you could touch once, but is now just a fading dream. I imagine the low end to be a baseline that rattles your teeth too, but I also consider the low end to be the smell of someone you once loved coming back to you. Some Someone who sang along to Aretha or Minnie or Otis. Someone who loved you once and then loved nothing. Um, thank you. Um, out of that, a lot of that particular letter, but a lot of the essays in um, "We're Head in the Rain" and, of course, in other books, do a lot of um, moves to revelation and epiphany, right? Um, but it's always like in the middle of the piece, right, or the yeah. third of the piece, or something like in the beginning of the piece, right? I'm really curious about how you write past epiphany. Um, in particular, the letter you all talked about, the epiphany was like failure, it was joy, it was love, it was all yeah. these things coming in at different places in the actual letter, but you didn't end on right the revelation or the epiphany, right? And the impulse for many writers is to stop at that moment, right? Ah, I'm here, it's about joy, and then finish it, but you kept going past the revelation. So I want to know yeah. how you are able to write past the epiphany. Well, it's because I think that I'm foolish enough to believe that if there is one epiphany, there is surely another, mm -hmm. right? Um, the magic, we're attempting the magic again. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, because that is something that bears out all the time in my writing. You know, um, I was, I was, because the thing is never just the thing. Mm -hmm. There's always something, I was working on this longer piece about Josephine Baker, and the impulse was to be like, yo, Josephine Baker was a spy for the French resistance. Like, that is the thing. Mm -hmm. But surely if Josephine Baker was a spy for the French resistance, there's something underneath that that is almost more interesting than that initial mm -hmm. epiphany, right? Because the epiphany there is just like, this is a black woman who fought for another country because her country didn't love her enough, right? But underneath that, there's something else, surely, right? Um and so, yeah, and I, I think it's because I, I grew up obsessed with understanding and figuring out the stories underneath music. Um, like that Minnie Riverton story in there about the lions is something that I think some people would consider foolish, but I, I don't, right? I think that is that in and of itself is an epiphany, that um, Minnie Riverton was, was likely sick without knowing it when that photo was taken, and perhaps one of those two lions is attempting to tell her something. Right. You know, what I mean, all of these things are rattling in my head. And so to write towards an epiphany is one thing, but to write towards it with the understanding that you're also going to write through it hmm. kind of sets you up for looking for the other epiphanies elsewhere. Hmm. I love how that would translate to a way of being in the world. Yeah. You know, like if you're navigating the world and you're just waiting for the epiphany and then stopping there, 
like how much of like the delight and richness of life are you missing out on if you're not assuming there's a through way yeah. through that epiphany. I'm really curious, uh, and even in your description of it and in your reading of the low end there, like the relationship between epiphany and sort of like just explication, right? So much of it is a sort of like factual statements of like mm-hmm. describing that scene or like where the sample came from or like how it was stripped down as like, and I'm curious about this relationship was like of towards versus through, because I think there's some relationship to that. Like, do you turn to like explaining facts as like a way to or through or like, I how do you so. conceive of those things? Yeah, I I, I kind of love explaining the fact, right? The fact, especially if it's like a little known fact, um, because if it's little known, that means to me the story is richer. Um, and so it's not just explaining facts for the sake of spinning a wheel. Um, you know, it's not like my, my tires are stuck in the mud and I'm just kind of explaining all of the small parts of the larger thing. It's very much to me, explaining this fact is gonna carry me to the next thing. So I, I wasn't just explaining um, how a sample is broken down. I'm explaining also how a sample can be a, a historical artifact, right? Um, that like when stripped down, a sample is a way to hear a voice that is no longer with us. I saw um, this past weekend, I saw um, the Aretha Franklin Amazing Grace documentary concert film. Um, and I was so, we talk a lot, I think poets, writers, people who are alive and thinking, you talk a lot about archival and that's fine and that's great. Um, but there's also just something very plainly about seeing the living body of someone who you know is no longer here, right? Um, and that to me is more interesting. The fact that I got to see Aretha Young again with like her Afro again and singing in a church again. All of that is um, more vital to me. Like that pushes me towards the next curiosity because it tells me, that I have seen Aretha living and want to find a way to allow that to echo in my work. You touched a little bit on this earlier um, about the differences and the mindset between writing poetry and writing prose and how poetry offers you challenges that prose doesn't necessarily. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how maybe the mindsets differ um, when you're in that headspace of working on a poem or working on prose. And in a book like this nonfiction book you just read from, does using something like the epistle form, like writing a letter, sort of create a container that makes it feel more like writing a poem? Yeah. I think in a lot of my nonfiction work, I'm trying to find ways to inject poetic impulses and poetic language seamlessly without kind of... um, you know, so in some ways, a mindset is that in my nonfiction work, I can inject kind of all the poetic tricks that I enjoy employing. But in my poetic work, I have to stop myself from being the deliverer of a fact, right? Or I have to stop myself from being the very um, on its face, here's the story reporter in a way. Although a poem can be a type of reporting, I think the best, the poems I like the best are, are kind of reporting, you know, I think. Um, you know, who was a better reporter? Like, Gwendolyn Brooks was singularly gifted as a reporter. You know, there's a reason why um, you know, Patricia Smith was once a journalist and it shows up in her work, right? Like, Blood Dazzler is a book of reporting. Um, but for me, the impulse uh, that shows up in my, non- <laughs> my nonfiction. Oops. <laughs> That was, that was like wild jarring. <laughs> You're done. Thanks for coming. Um, I just, yeah, I was like, damn, did I say something wrong? Um, Cookies are done. No one's a Glendale Brooks fan. Uh, 
but for me, yeah, the impulse that shows up in my in my nonfiction is always how can I bend this, how can I erase the idea of genre from this, mm-hmm. um, and for poetry, I am, and again, this is also just because I'm less certain of my poetic impulses still, and I imagine I will be for a long time. I know that all poets are, but yeah, um, are. <laughs> but I think I, I still feel very behind on my poetic impulses. So my ideas are often how can I, with my understanding of the genre container in poetry, uh, poke enough holes in it and play a little bit so that people don't notice. Um, when when I'm writing nonfiction, it's like, how do I just, how do we not talk about this? As, there's a reason like we stripped the idea of biography from that book. One, it's not a straightforward biography at all. It doesn't offer any like exclusive information or whatever. But two, you know, to me it is, the entire book is kind of an epistolary type joint, right? Not everything is like a direct letter address, but it is my letter to that time period uh, and that era and that group and how they've carried me through a lifetime. That's dope. Um, I uh, am curious. Uh, in interviews, I've also heard you talk about uh, in writing, they can't kill us until they kill us, that uh, that you'll never suffer for making art again. In yeah. the name of making art again. Yeah. And I was wondering like if you were willing to talk about it, like what sort of drove you to that conclusion and like how what what do you turn to like as a way of making art? Yeah, I mean the the writing of A Can't Kill Us has kind of been mythologized at this point. because uh, people are like, I heard he wrote it in like three days. <laughs> um, but it it is true that I wrote the majority of that book in three weeks. Um I was going through like a really difficult time. I was going through like a like life-changing breakup um and and it was kind of you know i think anyone who's gone through like a a really intense breakup knows that there are moments where it's beginning and then there's a moment when you're like really in it uh and then there's a moment when you're crawling out of it and then there's a moment where you are moving forward and so this was kind of in between the transition of those first two periods where it's like okay it's already begun and it's like okay now i'm really in it um and it was december like late november uh, and I went to Provincetown, which as I mean, y'all surely know, is like a beach town. So in the winter, no one's there at all. It also is on the like easternmost edge of the country. So it gets Very dark. Cold. It's cold and like super dark mm-hmm. real early. Mm-hmm. Like the day I got there was the darkest day of the year. I got there and it was dark at maybe 345. You know? Ooh, fuck. And these weren't intentional moves. I just wanted to get away. I was living in Connecticut at the time. Um, and I wanted to get away and I wanted to go somewhere where no one would talk to me or bother me. Or, and I knew I had this book to work on. Um, and so I spent about two and a half, three weeks in Provincetown um, just writing this book. I would, you know, at that time of year, nothing's open except for like no one's in town except for like the, the drunks and the bartenders who serve the drunks. And so there's like bars open, but the, the grocery store would close at sporadic times you know there's a stop and shop at the edge of town and it would close whenever they wanted to kind of and so i would have to get up super early and then go to the get like whatever i needed for the day and then i would come back and write uh, and then i would take always take these walks on the beach uh, no matter how cold it was and then i would come back and write and i would watch this like for some reason i was obsessed with watching this these run of like bad romantic comedies every uh. night i would like when I had a life-changing breakup, I consumed <laughs> so many rom-coms. Yeah, it's a very like, like odd 
Same. Yeah. Yeah. So I would like watch a different one every night. Yeah. I would just like find. I read a bunch of books about love. I think I was like, I I discovered I was trying to figure out what we tell ourselves about right. love, mm-hmm. like as a way to make sense of like the yeah. thing that I was trying to that I was like experiencing. That's what I was on. I was on yeah. that. You know, I was yeah. on that shit. And so like, um, yeah. and then I walked out of Provincetown like with this book. Um, wow. But it is hard to have. Um, at the time, of course, no one thought this book was going to have the life that it did. And it dawned on me after it came out and was so well received that it is hard to have something this beloved attached to a, a traumatic era of my life. And so I decided kind of then and there that I, I just could not create through trauma or grief. You know, the, uh, the Crown Night Worth Much was written um, in the midst of Ferguson, in the midst of Baltimore, in the midst of all of these things. Like, you know, half of that book was literally written while watching live streams of protests, right? And I I wanted to kind of move away from that idea that um, writing is, that my writing at least has to be lens through suffering and isolation. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I felt like um, Go Ahead in the Rain was kind of the first small manifestation of that. Um, but I really feel like the new poetry book got like really I, f- I feel like was written in a, the most healthy way I've ever written a book. Mm. Do you think it's changed the way you um, like engage with suffering like as a subject matter? Absolutely. I mean the, the, the new poetry book is, is different because um, it was going to be a very sad book and then I just realized that it wasn't that book anymore, you know? Um, and that was kind of refreshing for me to throw. I mean I, <laughs> yeah, I threw away like half of the book mm-hmm. uh, wow. and just rewrote, you know, a lot of the poems in it. Um, and that was really great. It was, I got it in the new nonfiction book, um, that I just turned in. I'm glad that it's done, uh, <laughs> or at least a draft of it is done. Um, I was so excited about writing. I was so like, I was getting up every morning basking in this idea that, you know, it's not something I have to work through. It's something that I'm choosing to run towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was for me the first time being able to write poems with that in mind and being able to like eagerly show them to my friends and like um, being able to get excited about reading them out loud uh, was a way different experience. I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I, I don't know. Um, I've been wrestling lately with this idea that I've maybe written my last book of poems. Like I don't, I think a lot of poets feel that way. After it's normal to feel books, that way. But, yeah. um, I, I really feel like I, I don't, of course, I would still write poems, but the way that I felt um, with this book and the way I felt reading this book out loud, though sometimes it is, you know, when you write poems that are um, emotionally jarring in the process, you just think you're doing the work, but then you never realize, like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to read these out loud at some point. Um, but to kind of be able to do that has been great, you know? Um, I remember going, we did a, uh, like, we did, like, a team mashallah retreat sometime last year. Um and it was the first time I like was showing people some of the stuff, you know, I was like, um, and I, I think all the time that your peers should be your, your lighthouses in a way. Um, I'm starting to restructure the idea of mentorship. And I think my mentors have to be the people I can like look to my right and left and see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, like, I know that I've done, I know that I've done a thing that I'm proud of. Like if Safia likes my shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> or if like, if Angel is like you did, you know, because these people know my work, right? And so I remember like having some of these new poems at the Team Mashallah retreat, and um, Angel was like reading them, and 
it was silent. And then she put she put him down on the table and she leaned back and she said, "You're really in your bag." <laughs> and I was like, "Finally, you know what I mean?" I felt like because like, no, no one had like seen these. Yeah, yeah, like no one had seen the work, you yeah. know, and to have them. And so yeah, like I, you know, if Fatima mm-hmm. tells me I'm doing some something, then I feel like I am, or if you know, mm-hmm. um, and com- like on the other side of that, if they tell me that I'm not that I'm not pushing something, yeah, as far that's as important that yeah. they'll tell you that too. Yeah, so. And I feel like that's a result of my, partially a result of my not writing. It could have been easy for me to write the traumatic, like, post-breakup book. Um, but I think that breakup art, particularly when made by, like, straight men, is wildly unimaginative and often, <laughs> um, like, targeting in some ways. And I wanted to examine that. I wanted to examine, like, what it is to write a breakup book if you imagine, or write poems about heartbreak if you imagine that, you are the only person in the room. Mm -hmm. And so it's not this like thing where you're pointing a finger, Mm -hmm. but if you're in a room full of mirrors, how do you write your way out of it? Um, And and that was more interesting to me, but even in the writing of that, even in trying to pursue that, I would realize that that is not what this book was about at all. Um, Some of that's because my life changed. Like I moved home, you know, I stopped being sad. (laughs) You know, like all these things. but I think it's also because I got excited about writing in a way that wasn't like, I have to write my way through this trauma. That was a long and winding answer. Sorry. No, that was okay. beautiful. It is maybe time to admit that Michael Jordan definitely pushed off that one time in the 98 NBA Finals and in praise of one man's hand on the waist of another's and in praise of the ways we guide our ships to the shore of some brief and gilded mercy, I touch my fingers to the hips of this vast and immovable grief and push once more. And who is to say, really, how much weight was behind Jordan's palm on that night in Utah? And on that same night, one year earlier, The paramedics pulled my drowning mother from the sheets where she slept, and they said it must have felt like a whole hand was pushing down on her lungs. And I spent the whole summer holding my breath in bed until the small black spots danced on the ceiling. And I am sorry that there is no way to describe this that is not about agony, or that is not about someone being torn from the perch of their comfort. And on the same night a year before my mother died, Jordan wept on the floor of the United Center locker room room after winning another title because it was Father's Day and his father went to sleep on the side of a road in 93 and woke up a ghost and there is no moment worth falling to our knees and galloping towards like the one that sings our dead back into the architecture and so yes for a moment in 1998 Michael Jordan made what space he could on the path between him and his father's small and breathing grace and so yes there is an ocean between us the length of my arm and I have built nothing for you that can survive it. And from here, I am close enough to be seen, but not close enough to be cherished. And from here, I can see every possible ending before we even touch. Damn. Thank you. Thank you to Hanif for hanging out, drinking lukewarm Sprite with us, and giving us your hot takes on sneakers, slashes, and suffering for art. 
Thank you to The Flavor Blue for our awesome theme music, to Springtime for the flowers, and to you, beautiful listeners, for being here. Please, if you haven't already, take a quick moment to rate us five stars and write us a sweet little review, which helps other folks looking for poetry podcasts find us. And bonus makes us really happy. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> makes my day. Aww. Follow us also on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send on your burning questions, burning desires, burning bushes, <laughs> compliments, etc. to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Hands gonna take on these streets, gonna show you who's man's cause my crew mob steady, Feddy and spaghetti, Feddy and spaghetti, Feddy in the 